through to verse 24. This is our Lord speaking as he continues his stories. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Well, let us pray for God's blessing upon the reading of his word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us such wondrous language here before our eyes and in our ears. And we pray that what our Lord has said would not merely be heard, but heard with the hearing of faith as well, so that we may all believe and we may all know that you are our Father who is in heaven. We pray this for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, this parable probably strikes some of us a little bit differently than, than others. Uh, some of us have, um, shall we say, uh, experienced this parable personally in our lives. And so for that reason, uh, it hits us. There are certain hymns that perhaps hit us that were very uh, powerful at a certain point in our life, and we sing them, and they can bring out all sorts of emotions. This is a parable that I uh, have lived in my own life, and uh, as one who grew up uh, not serving the Lord and going off to university and coming back from university a Christian and, and so excited about my newfound faith, I, I did grow up in a family where one of my siblings would, would teach Sunday school uh, in, when, while I was in high school and uh, was a good child, never caused any trouble in the households compared to what I did. And I came back so excited about the Lord, and yet my sibling, who had been in the church and teaching and living a good life, decided to never go back to church again to this day. And uh, so that is as close to the parable of the prodigal son as, as, as I can think of. And yet I've never preached on this parable. Maybe that's the reason. 
and uh, I don't know the psychology behind it, but uh, this is the most well-known parable of our Lord. It's also the longest recorded story we have by our Lord. In fact, I think in the original Greek, there are 388 words that comprise this story. And what you have is almost 60%, I would say about 62% of the, the story uh, reflects the story of the younger brother and 38% of the story, the older brother. And so it's really the parable of the two sons. When you call it the parable of the prodigal son, you miss the massive impact that the story is meant to have regarding the older brother. If you just think of the prodigal son alone and the older brother is a sort of uh, mere appendix. The older brother is not a mere appendix. It's a major part of the story. And to appreciate that, you need to understand a little bit of the context. You will know that uh, our Lord opens up. And as he does, there's a sort of escalation in Luke chapter 15. Remember, there's the lost sheep. And how many sheep are there? There's a hundred and one of them goes missing. One is lost. And shockingly, the shepherd leaves to find one and leaves the 99, which doesn't really actually make a lot of sense. And parables are supposed to strike you as a bit odd. And yet this one that is found seems to be worth it because this is one that has been lost and now is found, as opposed to the 99 who don't believe that they are lost. Now, with that said, it escalates a little more in terms of the percentage. So you have 1% of the total wealth, let's say, of, of the sheep has gone missing and now is found. Then the story of the missing coin represents 10%. So there's 10 coins, one goes missing, and again, there is the issue of a coin being found at home, whereas the sheep was lost away. So you go from 1% to 10%, and now things escalate dramatically. And they escalate not just in terms of the lost son who is found, who is dead and is now alive, which would represent 50%, but we're talking now about a human life. And this human life changes everything about this parable. Now the audiences listening to this is what makes this parable really come alive and helps us to understand uh, really what Jesus is doing here. If you go to the end of Luke chapter 14, the last verse, we read, Let him who has ears hear. If you have ears to hear, hear. And then chapter 15 opens, and Luke is very, very aware of this, by telling us that the tax collectors and sinners were doing what? They were drawing near to hear him. So those who have ears to hear, let them hear. The next verse, who are the ones who are hearing? They are the tax collectors and the sinners. The tax collectors were Jewish people who had basically sold out to Rome. They would act on behalf of Rome and go to their fellow Jewish people and collect what were sometimes highly oppressive amounts of money in the form of taxation from the Jewish people. They were hated. They were despised. They were ridiculed. They were not well liked. 
And then there were sinners. And sinners is a technical theological term in the New Testament. Not just talking about the fact that everybody's a sinner. Sinners in the New Testament typically refers to those who openly flaunted God's law. They were um, greedy, sexually immoral. They were murderers, thieves. And uh, they would break the Ten Commandments in an obvious, visible way. So you have the tax collectors and you have the sinners comprising the one group who are drawing near to hear. And then you have another group. And Luke tells us in verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. Now he's using that word deliberately. Why would he be using that word deliberately? Because if you read the Old Testament, who are the ones who grumble? But the faithless Israelites in the Old Testament. They are the ones who grumble in the wilderness. They are the ones who are struck down by the destroying angel and by plagues. They are the ones who do not inherit the blessing. So the tax collectors and the sinners are drawing near to hear those who are religious, the Pharisees who outwardly keep God's law and the scribes who meticulously write down God's law are not drawing near to hear in the same way. In fact, they are grumbling. Now, what's also interesting to me is the Shema. The Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 tells us, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Who are the ones who are hearing? Who are the true Israelites? Well, something remarkable is happening. The ones who are actually hearing the Lord are the people you would least expect. They're the tax collectors and sinners. Who are the ones who are grumbling against the Lord? They're the religious, the Pharisees, the scribes. And so that's the context leading into this parable. And it's hugely important for you to understand the two groups as you read this parable then who are listening. And what you find is that the one group is going to agree with Jesus a great deal into the parable until a certain point. Now, notice in verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. This sets up the story. There are two sons. And there are two groups of people listening. And the younger of the two sons said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, if you were to ask most people, what did the father do when the younger son asked for his inheritance? Most people would say, and they're not entirely wrong, they would say the father gave him his inheritance. And most people read the parable this way, that the younger son received his inheritance and went into the far country and squandered it. But that's not exactly what the text says. The text doesn't say that the younger son received his inheritance. Rather, the text tells us that the father divided the inheritance between them. That is to say, the older brother received his inheritance at the same time that the younger brother did. And guess what? For any Jewish family, and if you are like me and you're the older uh, son in the family and you read Deuteronomy 21 verse 17 every night before you go to bed about the older son inheriting a double portion of the blessing. It's how I sleep at night. Some people have John 3.16 on their wall. I have Deuteronomy 21.17. 
The older brother does quite well out of the younger brother's request. He gets his inheritance also and a double inheritance. So the younger son receives his inheritance. And verse 13 basically gives us what could be an entire movie. Not many days later, I assume that there were certain movable assets that uh, were sold for the younger son to get his inheritance, where there may be the more fixed assets, the land and other things were given to the older brother. And so the younger brother, from what is obviously a wealthy family, receives his inheritance, is able to get it into, I assume he's not going to be taking 200 sheep along with him, but has money. And he gathers all that he has and takes a journey into a distant country, into a far country. He leaves and goes far away. It is interesting sometimes when some children want to get away from their house, they will go to a very far place. It's not enough to go to Abbotsford to get away from your parents. They pick England or they pick South America. They want to get away. There's something about the way children are when they've had enough and they want to leave and they go to a far place. Well, he goes to a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless or dissolute living. He basically wastes everything that he has been given. And at this point, I think the reaction of every hearer at this time is one of righteous anger towards what this younger son has done. He has received something from his father. He really didn't have to give his son his inheritance, but he does. The son gets something given to him, which appears to be all too easily, goes away and then squanders it in reckless, not even in a few failed business ventures that just didn't work out, but the idea was right. No, he just wastes his life. He wastes his money. He wastes what the Father has possibly worked hard to give. So anyone here who has worked hard for whatever wealth you have, would you like to give it to your child and then see your child driving down the street in a Porsche far too quickly, smashing into cars, getting out, going to strip clubs and then going and uh, booking first class and getting drunk? Would you like that? Of course you wouldn't. You're supposed to be angry at this point. There's no need for this type of behavior. So what ends up happening? Well, he wastes his money. And we don't know precisely what actions he engaged in. And I think that's the wisdom of our Lord's teaching. He just says reckless living. Possibly because there are some people sitting here this morning, if we were to list the reckless actions, would say high was far worse than that. And then you'd probably end up in the category of the older brother because, you know, you were the way worse sinner. That's how righteous you are. So the Bible doesn't always tell us exactly the details for good reason. It's like Paul with the thorn in his flesh. We don't really know what the thorn in his flesh was because if we did know exactly what that thorn was, you would say, oh, what's Paul complaining about? I have far bigger problems than Paul. My dad went to the doctor when I was there for Christmas. Victoria uh, goes to the doctor a lot. It's just what happens when you're a hypochondriac. He goes to the doctor, and the doctor knows him. And this was awesome. I love this doctor. If I ever find this doctor, I'm going to give him a good, firm handshake. My dad goes in and just says whatever he's got. And the doctor goes, listen, you think you've got problems? He says, I got bigger problems. And started to tell my dad about his problems. That's brilliant. 
So, we don't know. We don't know exactly what was going on. We don't need to know. The point is, he engaged in reckless, careless, frivolous, stupid, wasteful living. And then, a very important verse. One that I had drastically under stated its importance in my previous readings of this parable. Verse 14, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Disaster strikes. This could be a period of multiple years. Now, this is an important point for some of you who may be tempted by reckless living. What ends up happening? Well, he goes and he sins, and he sins in a way that we would all say was his own fault. But then something else happens. A severe famine happens which exacerbates the consequences of his sin. In other words, you may sin, but how do you know that providentially things won't happen that are going to make your sins even worse than what they were? You can't say to sin, it will go this far and only this far. Sin doesn't play by those games. When you sin, you're opening up your sin to other providential aspects in which your sin may end up having far worse consequences than what you ever imagined. He's got all this money, and if he runs out of money, what will he do when he's in Europe? What will he do? He'll just work. He'll buy some new batteries. So, he goes, he sins, and then providentially God brings a severe famine. And it arose in that country. And here you see the dawning of maybe what we call hope. And he began to be in need. There's the key. This is the the turning point of the story in many respects. The severe famine hits in such a way that he begins to be in need. And the gospel is only, and this is where a reader of the parable over time would start to say, yes, something's going to change now. Because when you see someone in need, they are those who are primed to receive the good news. When you're not in need, you don't have any need of the good news. And so he began to be in need. So, he's in need, he goes and does what any sensible person would do, he hires himself out. Now, he doesn't actually hire himself out, I don't think that's a very good way of stating the case. Uh, As scholars have said recently, he attached himself to, he didn't go and get a job, and the reason we know this, that he attached himself to, is he attaches himself to a citizen in a country so that he doesn't die, but what he finds out is that even the pigs that he has to feed are better off than he is. 
He attaches himself. He makes himself a slave to a citizen of that country. That citizen sends him into his fields to feed pigs. And guess what? We're not even told that he was able to eat what the pigs ate. He was longing, he desired, he wanted to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. In other words, he had a duty to feed these pigs, and he looks at what the pigs are eating, and he's thinking, if only I could eat what the pigs are eating. Now, a Jewish person desiring to eat what the pigs are eating is shocking. It's meant to startle the listeners. The Pharisees and the scribes know that pigs are unclean animals. They see this guy is getting precisely what he deserves. At this point, the Pharisees are probably cheering. The parable is being said and they like it. Sinners deserve judgment. He's getting judgment. He has to be humiliated into not even being able to eat what pigs eat. I like this so far, said the Pharisee. And if Jesus had just said, Amen, everyone could have walked away and said, Sinners get what they deserve. But the parable doesn't end at verse 16. In fact, in verses 17, To 19, after the younger brother expresses his hunger, his loneliness, his shame, and his ritual uncleanness, he comes to himself and he says, and he reasons, he still has his brain even though he doesn't have any food. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? And he's he's thinking this through. This is what I'll do. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. You have Psalm 51 right in those words right there. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Everything that David said in Psalm 51, the younger brother is now saying. So you talk about turning points in the parable. You could say that the severe famine is the turning point, because if it hadn't happened, who knows? Then you could look at the, he is in need But now you go to another turning point and he has recognized his sin against God. Not even just against his father, but against God, against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He has given up any rights he thought he had. Treat me as one of your slaves, one of your hired servants. He is prepared to be treated as a slave rather than a son. He has acknowledged his wrongdoing, his guilt, his sin, and he has repented. And so, in verse 20, he arose and came to his father. Now, in one verse, you have the younger son in a pigsty, but then being kissed by the father. He arose, we could say, out of the mess that he has found himself in, out of the humiliation that he has found himself in, and came to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The younger son has renounced his father. He renounced his family. He left in shame and indignity, and now he has come back. And the father... I suspect this is not the first time he's been looking out over the horizon. 
This is not the first time he's yearned for his son to return. This is not the first time he's wished to see his son coming over the hills, as it were, back home. And so the father looking out doesn't actually wait for the son to come crawling on his hands and knees, but he rushes out to him in his old age to his son. And how many words does the father say to the son? None at all. He doesn't need to. Because he felt compassion, and the compassion that he had led him to run towards him, embrace him, and kiss him. And we don't actually read of the father saying anything to the son. It's remarkable. But then the younger son begins his speech, and this we do see recorded. The younger son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, what's remarkable about this speech? What did he think he was going to say to his father? If you go back to verses 15 to, or 17 to 19, he, he discoursed on what he was going to say. In fact, the second part of verse 18, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He doesn't say those words when he actually meets his father. Why? Because he can't say those words. Because his father has already restored him to sonship. His father has embraced him. He hasn't met a cold, indifferent, angry father ready to judge him. He has met a father who has welcomed him back into sonship. And so it would have been utterly inappropriate for the son to say, treat me as one of your hired servants. When the father has already said, no, you are my son whom I love by the actions of the father. So the father said to his servants, not to his son, bring quickly the best robe. Now, if you have a pen and you have bring quickly, just switch quickly and bring. Because the first word in the Greek, and I think this is important, I don't usually go off on the Greek to you because nobody really can figure it out. And a lot of times pastors talk about it. They're wrong anyway. So, But this is an important point, I think. The first word in the Greek is quickly. Quickly bring. What must have seemed like such a long time, every day his son was gone, how the years must have been so slow waiting for his son to return. Now there's no time to waste. Quickly, quickly, quickly bring the best robe. Now here's where the parable takes another turn because you should be a little bit like, hang on now, this doesn't seem fair. And I want you to have that thought that this isn't fair because who does the best robe technically belong to at this point? The older brother. And the father's now saying, bring the best robe. Put it on him, the younger brother, the one who had recklessly lived and given away everything that I'd worked hard for and put a ring on his hand. Who did the ring belong to? To the older brother. And shoes on his feet. Who did the shoes belong to? The older brother. All of a sudden, the younger brother has received the inheritance for himself And the older brother seems to have lost out on the inheritance. And you have the two groups listening, the tax collectors and the sinners and the scribes and the Pharisees. And what do you behold? The scribes and Pharisees should be the ones inheriting the kingdom. And yet they are not. 
The tax collectors and sinners are the ones farthest away from the kingdom, and yet they are the ones who seem to be inheriting it. And bring the fattened calf, yes, the one that belonged to the older brother, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. The younger brother imagined that he might get bread in verse 17. And this is God. He imagined he might get bread, but instead, what does he get? A fattened calf. That's God. That's grace. Now, why celebrate? Why are they going to celebrate? Verse 24, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. We know being lost and found is a theme that runs right throughout this chapter. And it seems to me when they began to celebrate, this must be quite the celebration, a celebration that lasts a long time. And we don't really understand that in our culture, right? Even our weddings now are like an hour or two and we're done and dusted and we don't really have enough money in Vancouver to have a week-long wedding and you know parties going on and celebrations. I don't know. When was the last time you had a week-long celebration or something like that? I guess Christmas was pretty close for some of us. But the point is, this is a mass ongoing celebration. Now, I just want to ask one question, coming back to something I said earlier. Would the son have returned had the severe famine not happened? Would the son have got to such a desperate place in his life had the severe famine not happened? What if there wasn't a severe famine and he was able to eat and still get by? Would he have returned home? Now, was the famine good or bad? Obviously, it was bad. People would go hungry. We don't know how bad the famine was in terms of human life and all of that. But what we find is something quite remarkable, that even in the midst of something in and of itself that's very bad, a severe famine, a curse that is found in this sinful world, God is able to overrule it for good. God uses a severe famine to cause a younger brother to come to the end of himself and return home. And this is what God does He brings people to an end of themselves so that they find eternal life. He makes people to be in need so that they know they have need of a Savior. And it seems to me there's something really beautiful in the undercurrent of this parable that the younger brother asks for his inheritance and goes into the far country. And then he becomes hungry And he becomes thirsty and he's basically as good as dead as the father said. He was once dead, but now he's alive. And our Lord Jesus Christ was in his father's house. And he willingly went into the far country. He willingly came to earth. He willingly came into a place of total spiritual destitution, a wasteland. And he ended up living a life not too dissimilar in the end analysis of the younger son who said there's nothing to eat. He's in the wilderness and he's hungering. He's on the cross. And what does he say? I thirst. He comes to the end of himself. He enters into the misery of what that younger brother entered into because of his sin. And Jesus then brings us to the father. 
That's the glory of this parable is that in a certain sense, people have always said, well, Jesus is the true older brother. He's the faithful older brother. He's the one we can count on. But you see, there's a sense in which he's also the hungering, starving, thirsting younger brother who identifies with his people in such a way so that he may bring us to the father. And I want you to know, and I, God forbid you should ever do this, but if you were to take a path in life that would take you down reckless living, that would take you down a place where you are sinning, what do we say in our prayers? Are we prepared to say even as parents or as friends, bring my son Bring my daughter, bring my friend to an utter end of themselves so that they suffer if that means they come to their senses in order to return home. And some of you are not prepared to pray that prayer. I'm not prepared, I think, to pray that prayer should I have to. You're averse to it. You would rather a nice, quiet, soft conversion. But this parable, not one word is wasted of the 388. And that son had to suffer. He had to come to the end of himself so that he might come back to his father. And when one repents and when one owns their sin, they can find a father who will have compassion, not judgment, who will have love and not hate, who will have mercy and not judgment. Because he's God and he gives us far more a fattened calf than a piece of bread. He welcomes anyone and everyone who will come to him owning their sin. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we thank you for Christ coming into the far country leaving his father and entering into the destitution, the spiritual destitution of this world, thirsting and hungering so that he might take upon himself the curse that belongs to us and setting us free so that we might run into the father's arms, that we might run into a compassionate father's arms who does not judge us but welcomes us who does not hate us but loves us forevermore. We pray this for the sake of Christ's name. Amen.